Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the first part of the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, uh, which would be Genesis, as we're going to be looking at Genesis 1-1, and uh, starting into our exposition of Genesis this morning. Please, please pray with me, and then we'll begin. Uh, Father, we come before you asking that you would give us wisdom as we look into the book of Genesis. And Father, we are grateful to be your people. We're grateful to gather together to worship you. Forgive us of our distractions, of our cold prayers, and maybe just mechanical songs, and selfishness, and tiredness, and Father, all the things that distract us from giving to you what you deserve. And Father, we do look forward to Jesus' second coming. We look forward to seeing our Savior face to face, to be delivered from our sin-cursed bodies of death, that we might be free from our sin once and for all, so that we can stand in your presence blameless with great joy, so we can enjoy you, our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would help us to be faithful, help us to be holy. And help us to apply what we learn from your word to our lives so that men may see our good works and glorify you. And so that men may see by our love for one another that we are indeed your disciples. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we're going to look at Genesis. I just want you to know there is so much introductory material that could be poured into this that we could never actually get to the passage itself. So what I have to do is I'm going to spread out the introduction over multiple sermons just because there's so much. Some I have one book that has 300 pages of introduction. Now you can imagine me trying to tell you that in an hour. Um, that would be something that is beyond even me and I can speak pretty fast sometimes. So we're just going to give you a little bit. Uh, just so you know that Genesis is the most attacked book in all the Bible. It is the book that everybody loves to hate. Uh, So many bombs have been lobbed at it and missiles shot at it and hammers pounded on it. Why? Why is that? We want to talk about that a little bit this morning. Um, It is really um, my intention to kind of focus more on the text, but there are so many issues that I am going to deviate. I don't want to focus on error. Um, That's not my goal, although there is a place to explain errors that are prevalent in society and that affect the church and refute them with the truth. I hope to focus mostly on the truth as we go through Genesis, although there will be times when I will be digging digging up some of the sludge of of all the errors that are being uh, railed against it. But uh, since the Word of God is living and active, and sharper than any double-edged sword. And since it is piercing as far as division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, uh, unlike any other man-made argument or thing, uh, it's really the most powerful thing we can do is just focus on the truth. So that will be our our general intention as we go through. Uh, As far as how we're going to move through the book, uh, we're going to go very slow in Genesis 1 through 3. Then we're going to pick up a little bit of speed in Genesis 4 through 11. And then we're going to go pretty fast in Genesis 12 through 15, taking large chunks of text. And then we'll come back and maybe hit on a few key verses within those larger sections. So hopefully it's going to be about a two-year track through Genesis, which I know some of you are going, well, seeing it's believing. Um, (laughs) I can preach through the the whole book in one setting. I just don't want to. 
So, so I, I am shooting for about two years, just so you know. But we are going to go extremely slow in the beginning. So if you're thinking, oh, man, we're never going to finish the book, um, I am going to speed up as we continue on. But let's just, I just want to um, also mention why Genesis is important. Why is it so important? I mean, what's the big deal? Whenever you find the world attacking something viciously, like the Puritans or something, you know something is really good about it. Whenever the world hates something, you know it's awesome. Because Satan is the god of this world. And so you know he's going to oppose everything that God loves and The more God loves and values it, the more opposition you can expect against it. And so it is just that very thing tells us that uh, Genesis is a critical book. There are those who have tried to merge evolution in with the Bible. This has, of course, happened more in recent years since Darwin came out. Um, uh, Tried to say that, you know... There are huge gaps of time between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. Or there's huge gaps of time and eons of ages in between each of the days of creation and things like that. Which isn't true. It's not the plain reading of the text. No one ever believed that before Darwin. It's just desperate men trying to make excuses uh, to not believe God and to discredit his word. Other people have said, yeah, it's just uh, Genesis. See, what God, God believed in evolution. I mean, that was his mechanism. God created evolution and and he kind of got everything started and just kind of let things go. And he couldn't explain to unsophisticated men, um, you know, evolution. It's just too complex. And so God made up this little story about Adam and Eve in the garden and the serpent and everything to kind of just give us a little context of something to believe, to explain to ignorant men um, what God, who is the perfect communicator, wasn't able to communicate to us ignorant people. And that's why he made up the little stories at the beginning and the flood and things like that. Well, really the question that a logical person would ask is how can a perfect infinite, all-wise, all-knowing God lie to us? That is really the question. Either the Bible is true or it's not. And, you know, even though that is so... It's just, it's just so crystal clear. We're constantly pounded with millions and billions of years that everything came from nothing. I mean, what an insane leap of faith is that? Everything came from nothing? That is the futility of man's thinking. Consider what Genesis 1 through 11 teaches about God. It teaches us things like God is creator. God is the sovereign king. God is the righteous judge, the merciful savior. He teaches us that God created all things, that they are all designed by an infinitely wise God, that creation is sustained by the power of God, that creation reveals the goodness of God. Consider what the early chapters of Genesis teach us about man. Genesis teaches us that men were created in God's image to display unique characteristics that only God and man possess. That we need God, that we are accountable to God, that we are created to serve God, that we are to enjoy a relationship with God, that we are to rule over God's creation. We are to fill, fill the earth and multiply so that we can tell everybody and display God's glory. Concerning Satan, the early chapters of Genesis teach us that he is a finite created creature. He's very smart, very powerful, and very evil, but he is a liar and a murderer and under God's thumb. 
He is accountable to God. And it is God's plan to deal with Satan. To not only deal with Satan, but to deal with sin and to deal with death once and for all. And he's going to do it through a man born of a woman. Concerning sin, we learn from the early chapters of Genesis that sin is to reject God's word, God's authority, God's character. It brings death. It separates us from God. It produces guilt. It produces shame. It makes us want to hide from God. It causes conflicts in relationships. We learn that Eve was the first human being to sin because she was deceived by Satan and then Adam willfully rebelled. We learn that sin causes immediate spiritual death and then slow physical death. Concerning redemption, we learn from Genesis 1 through 11 that God is a gracious God, that God is an encouraging God, that God gives promises, that God gives blessings, that God makes covenants with unworthy sinners, that God shows mercy to murderers like Cain, that God is kind to rebels, that God provides a way that men can be forgiven of their sin and have a recon- be reconciled and have a relationship with their creator, that God seeks out sinners to save them and provides a way to save them. And therefore is worthy to be praised. This is just the tip of the theological iceberg of all the doctrines that are found in these early chapters of the book of Genesis. And other things like, what is marriage? What is the definition of marriage? One man, one woman for life is found in there. Also, the importance of modesty, the roles of husband and wife, the value of human life, the purpose of animals, the sacrifice, uh, si- the sacrificial system, the doctrine of substitution. They're all in these uh, early chapters of Genesis. That's where they find their foundation. And if you deny the early chapters of Genesis, you shoot all those doctrines in the head and you wipe out Christianity. That's what happens. That's why it's important. Third, Genesis is is attacked. And you say, well, who's attacking it? Unbelievers are attacking it. Why? Because they want to create their own religion. A religion where they're not accountable to God. A religion where they can sin like they want without a guilty conscience. A, A religion where they don't have to fear death and judgment forever in the lake of fire. And so they believe a lie to ease their consciences so they can sin with A free conscience. Of course, that doesn't change the fact that they are going to die and face God and be judged and cast into hell unless they repent. But it makes them more comfortable on their way to hell. The bottom line is that evolution is the primary religion which is promoting this today. And that's, of course, why we're doing the Creation versus Evolution series on Sunday nights. If you haven't been coming or listening to those, you should. Because they have many, we are telling you many of the things that I don't have time to go into detail in uh, during their exposition of Genesis. But bottom line is this. What's the deal with evolution? Here it is. Evolution is not scientific. Not in the least bit. There is zero, nada, not, nippon, yet. Scientific evidence to support. No hard science to support evolution. None. None. Evolution contradicts scientific laws that have never been proven false. Evolution is not true. It is a scientific impossibility. And if I could say it stronger, I would have. Theologically and biblically, evolution is demonic religion, an attack on God, the Word of God, Christ, and Christianity. It cannot be merged with the Bible. They are like water and oil. Evolution is a full-on assault against the truth and the foundation of the doctrines of Christianity. 
It leads to immorality, racism, Nazism. You know, hey, let's just, you know, get a a whole group of people and kill them because after all, it's survival of the fittest. So I'm just going to kill you because I don't like what you look like or where you came from. That's what evolution produces. That's why it was so popular with Hitler. Four, religious attacks on Genesis are also happening today. You think, so not only are unbelievers attacking Genesis, but so are professing believers. In 2004, there was the Clergy Letter Project started, instituted by biologist Michael Zimmerman, now dean of Butler University, with the help of Pastor John McFadden of First Congregational Church of Christ, Appleton, Wisconsin, who wrote the letter trying to gather signatures from pastors who believe in evolution. The letter states in part, quote, For too long, the misperception that science and religion are inevitably in conflict has created unnecessary division and confusion, especially concerning the teaching of evolution. I wanted to let the public know that numerous clergy from most denominations have tremendous respect for evolutionary theory and have embraced its core component of as a core component of human knowledge, fully harmonious with religious faith, end quote. Right off the bat, it shows... McFadden's ignorance that the, the issue is not between science and religion. It's between the religion of evolution and the religion of Christianity. Because evolution is not scientific. The dispute is really one of religions. One promoted the doctrines of demons, the other from the scriptures. The clergy letter goes on to say, quote, we understand clergy, Christian clergy from many different traditions believe that the timeless truths of the Bible and discoveries of modern science may comfortably coexist. We believe that the theory of evolution is a foundational scientific truth, one that has stood up to rigorous scrutiny and upon which much of human knowledge and achievement rests. To reject this truth or to treat it as one theory among others is to deliberately embrace scientific ignorance and transmit such ignorance to our children. And then he goes on to this little diatribe of, you know, we need to not bury our heads in the, in the sand as Christians. We need to use our brain, which he means, by which he means embrace evolution. And says, quote, we urge school board members to preserve the integrity of the science curriculum by affirming the teaching of the theory of evolution as a core component of human knowledge. We ask that science remain science and that religion remain a religion. Two very different but complementary forms of truth, end quote. Those are the words of a false teacher, a liar and a deceiver. I don't know if he knows the word Christ or not, but I'm telling you that is from the pit. Since September 9th, 2011, 12,757 pastors have put their signature to the clergy letter. So what's happening here is we have a world where everybody is attacking Genesis. You know, you know, there's a lot of Christian colleges out there that say they believe the Bible. But I think there's only six or maybe five now that actually have all the faculty that actually believe in creation. Biblical creation. Six or five. That's all. What about the implication? So you say, well, Jack, come on. You're, you're kind of exercised here. I'm not even kind of. <laughs> what are the implications of rejecting, you know, Genesis 1 through 3 or 1 through 6 or whatever you want to reject in the beginning? Well, what's at stake is this. 
the veracity, authority, and reliability of God's word. That's what's at stake. That is the target that Satan is aiming at. If the Bible is not true, in Genesis 1 through 3, I mean, do you start believing in chapter 4? Or do you wait till after the flood and start believing in Genesis, what, 8? Not 9? How about 11? When do we get to start believing the Bible is true? Not only that, if the early chapters of Genesis are false and evolution true, the authors of Scripture are liars. And Jesus is a liar. Therefore, Jesus is a sinner, which means he can't be a savior, and we're all dead in our sins. You need to let that sink in a little bit. R.A. Torrey, in his work, The Doctrinal Value of the First Chapters of Genesis, said, quote, The book of Genesis is the seed in which the plant of God's word is unfolded. It is the starting point of God's gradually unfolded plan of the ages. Genesis is the base of the pillar of divine revelation. It is the root of the tree of the inspired scriptures. It is the source of the stream of the holy writings of the Bible. If the base of the pillar is removed, the pillar falls. If the root of the tree is cut out, the tree will wither and die. If the foundation head of the stream is cut off, the stream will dry up. The Bible as a whole is like a chain hanging upon two staples. The book of Genesis is one staple. The book of Revelation is another. Take away either staple, the chain falls in confusion. If the first chapters of Genesis are unreliable, uh, the revelation of the beginning of the universe, the origin of the race, and the reason for its redemption are gone, end quote. You wipe out. I mean, how can you believe in a savior who tells you Adam exists, that God created, that there was a serpent in the garden when he's lying to you? He can't be a savior. He's lying or he's telling the truth and evolutionists are lying. Now, you need to think about that one. What could be? What could be? Now, I just want to answer a question before I move on, because a lot of people, when they hear me say things like this, well, so you're saying that Christians can't believe in evolution? I'm saying that deceived Christians can. Christians can believe lies. And any Christian who has believed in evolution believes a lie. They have all embraced false religion that undermines the veracity of the Bible and Christianity altogether. So, yes, you can be a born-again, true Christian and believe a lie. The Bible, when taken literally, when taken in its plain meaning, when taken as it's always, almost always been taken before Darwin, teaches, when you read it, that God, the all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing creator, spoke into existence all that exists in six literal 24-hour periods, everything, about 6,000 years ago. A couple thousand years after that, about 4,000 years ago, there was a global flood. Now you say that today, especially among those who know everything, like scientists, they just, a lot of them just scoff at you. It's like, you're kidding me. You actually believe that? I love to talk to people like that. <laughs> so what's your mechanism of evolution? Speak to me. Where'd everything come from?
They don't know. We know. Why? Because we know a guy who was there. He was there. And he actually made everything. And he tells us about himself in the book. And that person is God. So let's see what God says. And let every man be a liar. A simple theme for the book of Genesis is beginnings. Beginnings. If you want a longer theme, I kind of like the sovereignty of God and the making and preserving of the nation Israel. Why? Because in the book, you, 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 you begin to see God, you know, calling Abraham and then you get choosing Isaac and then, and then Jacob with his sons who become the 12 tribes and being preserved and moving to Egypt so they can become a great people. And even though they actually don't become a nation until Exodus 19, uh, you get to see God crafting a people through which his word would come and through which the Messiah, the Redeemer of mankind, would come. If you want a simple one, beginnings is good. If you want to know about the structure of the book, it's pretty easy to get down. The book can be divided up into two sections, 1 through 11 and 12 through 50. 1 through 11, four key events. Can you think of what they might be? Creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel, or the nations. Then the second half of the book... It's not divided in half, but the second section, 12 through 50, four people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. That's it. You get that? You pretty much got the whole book down. You got the four events, 1 through 11, four people, 12 through 50. Creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel, and people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. That will help you kind of get the book into perspective. I'm going to read Genesis 1. We'll see what God says about what he did in the beginning, since he is the only one who was there. And this is what God says. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so, when God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth. And gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, a third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he made the stars also. I love that phrase. 
And he made the stars also. All billions and billions of them. Stars. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to govern the, ni- govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth and the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening And there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps in the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves in the earth. And then God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has yield, has fruit yielded seed. Its seed shall be, it shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and to everything that moves in the earth which has life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So this morning we're going to look at part of verse 1. Verse 1 is a pretty easy verse to break down. If you look at it, you can see the subject. What is the subject? God. God is the one, the doer of the action. Uh, God is the subject and the action word, the verb, is that he created. The time reference in which he did this was in the beginning and the objects of what he created are heavens and earth. So it's pretty easy to break it down. That's it. We're going to look at the time reference, the time of creation. Know when God created. The first verse of the Bible says, in the beginning. The beginning of what? Everything but God. Everything but God. God existed before the universe. God created time. And within time, he created the universe. There's a scientific law. It's called the scientific law of cause and effect. It's a scientific law that we've never, ever disproven. It's always true. It's never been shown to be false. And it says that everything that happens is happens because something caused it to happen. You know, you, you ask yourself, okay, we've got this uh, this nice wood pulpit here. Where did this pulpit come from? Well, it came because it was over there. And before it was over there, it was over here. And before it was over here, it was over there. And if you could look at a time-lapse of photography, you'd see it shifting back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, to the day when somebody brought it into the building, Lou Stone, out of the back of his pickup truck. 
He said, well, how did he get in his pickup truck? Well, he put it in there. Where did he put it in there? From his garage. Where did he get it from his garage? Well, he built it out of some wood. Well, where did the wood come from? It came from the lumber yard. Where did the lumber yard get it? From the distributor. Where did the distributor get it? From the, the lumber mill. Where did the lumber mill get it? From the lumberjacks that put it in a truck. And where did they get it? From this big oak tree in the forest. Well, where did that come from? From an acorn. And where did that acorn come from? From another oak tree. And where did that one come from? From another acorn. That some squirrel buried and forgot. And you keep going back to generation, generation until you get to the acorn that was floating around during the flood and settled somewhere. Well, well, that would come. It came from a tree that got wiped out in the flood. And before that, there was other trees and other trees. And you go back to the first tree. And who made that tree? God. Who made the soil for it to grow in? God. Who made the air for it to breathe? God. Who made the sun? God. And everything gets back to God. It doesn't matter what it is. You can look at any item, any process, anything that happens. You keep extrapolating backwards and you always get to what theologians call the first and ultimate uncaused cause of all things God. It's the law of cause and effect. Of course, evolution doesn't have one of those. They believe in a different God, the God of matter. It's called materialism. They believe matter has always existed. That matter came into being out of nothing. Imagine that. Poof. That nobody caused it to be. It just always was. Even though it defies a law that has never been proven wrong. And you say, well, how can they believe that? I mean, how can they just have faith that it's always existed and just kind of just say that it just like, you know, popped out of nowhere or whatever. Well, Paul tells us. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and we'll see why they believe things like this. Why do men propose things like evolution? And Paul answers this question very clearly in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following. Paul, in Romans chapter 1 through 3, is explaining that all men are sinners and why they need salvation. And so in his initial discussion, which we're going to look at right now, he begins to talk about where all these false religions and all these work salvation things and all these weird things come from. He says, starting in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So here Paul says that all men know there's a God. There's a problem, though. Because they're unrighteous, they're sinners, they suppress that truth. Though it's clear, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, even though it is evident. It is evident. They don't want to submit to God. They don't want to have to do what God says. They want to have their own freedom, their own will. They want to sin with a free and easy conscience, and so they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then they end up worshiping and serving the created things rather than the creator. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, notice Paul believed in creation. But of course, if evolution is true, he's a liar. Um, Paul believed in creation. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. This, of course, is really Paul stating that he believes in the law of cause and effect. He says, when you go outside and you see everything, obviously it didn't come from nothing. 
And look at verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was dark. And professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the uncorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Notice all men have a knowledge of God. All men exchange the truth of God for a lie and they worship and serve created things instead of the creator himself. Now, what does this give rise to? Verse 24, therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Notice that once you reject God as the divine creator, it leads to immorality, immorality, adultery, fornication. Why? If there's no God, there's no morality, no moral standard. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over. This is the second time God gave them over because they've rejected him as their creator to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned a desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So, as people continue to reject their creator... They're first given over to immorality and then to homosexuality and then lesbianism. And they're trained to satiate themselves with pleasure because they won't find their satisfaction in God. There is no more morality because the morality comes from the Bible. And it's just one man's opinion over another rather than the creator's instruction. Then... There's one more level of being given over. Look at verse 28 and following. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. This is the third time it says that to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. See if this sounds like the morning paper being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. And that's the world we live in today. Because it has rejected God as the divine creator. We have kicked the legs out from under morality. We have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. And that is why our society is given over to immorality and homosexuality and depravity of all sorts. It starts with rejecting God as creator. Paul employs the law of cause and effect, and he says, listen, it can be obvious. It's evident. Verse 20, everybody can see. It can be clearly seen by creation. Things don't just pop out of nothing, especially things intricately designed don't just pop out of creation. I take you out in the middle of the desert. And now uh, we were walking out in the middle of the desert. We were out in the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden, we come upon a little pile of rocks. They're kind of piled up in this little like heap, this little like little pyramid. And they're kind of balancing there on top. And I go, oh, look. I said, look at those, how those rocks just by chance kind of piled themselves up into that little pointed heap. And you say, no, they didn't. I said, no, no, yeah, it just happened by chance. I said, no, no. Rocks don't do that. And look, there's footprints on the ground. Somebody did that. Why would you say that? Design. 
even though that little heap of rocks, it's, it's about the basic design you can get. We can clearly see nobody would go out there and go, oh, happened by chance. You know, unless it's something like the human eye, that can happen by chance. The fact that rocks are piled up is a dead giveaway that someone did it. It's obvious. It's evident that somebody did it. When we observe the world and see how it is fearfully and wonderfully made and we see all the complexities and the design, not only in like the solar system and the galaxies and the laws of physics, and, but in plants and the cells and photosynthesis and, and, and animals and just all the complexities, it is mind-blowing. The design is down to the microscopic level. I mean, I remember one time I went to Hewlett Packard and looked through their electron microscope at the eye of a fly, just for fun. Man, it was cool. All the way down to the microscopic level, everything is geometric and designed and sequenced and stacked. I mean, we looked at, you know, how the eye has kind of made all those little little eyes. We kind of looked at the eyes and looked at three of them. And then in, there was a tiny little hair, and we zoomed up on the hair, and it looked like little donuts all stacked in perfect symmetry. It was, I mean, down to things you can't even see unless you have an electron microscope. You trying to tell me that that just fell together? That's what evolutionists teach. Random accident, no intelligence, no designer, no purpose, nothing more than random chance. That cannot happen. It's evident. It's obvious. You would have a greater probability of getting all the building materials, all the paint, all the joint compound, all the wire, all the plumbing, all the stuff, piling up in the parking lot and putting a bunch of dynamite under it and blowing it up and have it just construct a perfectly brand new house. That would be more probable than a, one single cell coming into existence. Cells work because of DNA. DNA is the most complicated thing that we have ever discovered. It is made out of all these little um, chains of little microscopic pieces that are all sequenced and twisted together into this complex information code thing. You have to come on Sunday night if you want to learn more about it. Um, you know, you can learn some more sophisticated terms, but I'm just trying to be simple here. It's just, it's insanely complex. Not only do you have, the only thing that makes DNA are little micro-machines inside of cells. There's little micro-machines inside of cells that manufacture DNA and put it together, all these little tiny pieces in the perfect sequence so you have something. Now, think about this. You tried to tell me that this chemical soup was just kind of hanging around and in an oxygen-free atmosphere, because it has to be that way because of things I won't go into, um, it has to be an oxygen-free atmosphere. And all of a sudden, there was a little zap of lightning. And all of a sudden, all those pieces, all the machinery, which before that time didn't exist, had no purpose, were not created to do anything, had no desire to be with each other, kind of bumped into each other and the cell. That, people, is why Paul said they suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was dark and professing to be wise, they became fools. That cannot happen. Evolution is exhibit A of what Paul is talking about. When men suppress the truth and righteousness, 
Evolution is nothing more than the best wrong answer they've been able to come up with. You know, there's no mechanism of evolution. They've never seen it happen. There's no transitional forms in the fossil record. There's nothing to support it. They don't have a cause. They don't have a mechanism. They don't have anything but wishful thinking. Faith. Faith. They believe it to be true. That's why they're, quote, scientific. But we, we're Christians. We just believe the Bible. Listen, in Genesis 1-1, God started the clock. A past, a present, a future became into being. That's what it means when it says in the beginning. The beginning of everything we know that exists. All the laws, all everything. God started it all. He started it all. The eternal God created time and within time created the universe and all it contains. Because God himself is eternal. God is described by Abraham in Genesis 21:33 as the everlasting God. Deuteronomy 33 verse 27 calls God the eternal God. Job 36:26 says the number of God's years is unsearchable. Psalm 90 verse 2 says from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Psalm 102 verse 27 says but you are the same your years will not come to an end. The psalmist says in 135 verse 13 your name O Lord is everlasting. Isaiah 26 verse 4 says trust in the Lord forever for in God we have an everlasting rock God speaking of himself in Isaiah 43 verse 13 says even from all eternity I am he and in Isaiah 48 verse 12 God says of himself I am he I am the first I am the last Isaiah 57 verse 15 God described himself as the one who lives forever there is a God who is eternal and it's hard well it's impossible for us to talk about what existed before time, before anything existed, because all of our terminology is about things that exist, the realm we live in, which didn't exist then. So what was it like before Genesis 1-1? God, in the vastness of his being, um, perfectly content, self-sufficient, existing. That's it. Not before, not after. God. He is the great I am, the existing one, as he told Moses at the burning bush. And there's discussion about, you know, from theologians, they like to talk about the white spaces of scripture. Is God atemporal or is he simply eternal? It's like, what's that? Uh, uh, there, there's discussion about, is God outside of time? Or is God within time? Or is he both? I think both is the best answer. Obviously, before time began, God was existed, so he exists outside of time. But we also know that God works, meets with us, deals with things in time. So he interjects himself into time too. God is the eternal God. And some have tried to say things like, well, you know, when you look at Genesis, when it says in the beginning here, um, it's really... You could actually translate it when God began to create. And they like to say that so they can believe other doctrines. Like 
a doctrine called pre-Adamism, that there was this whole human race that God kind of tried and they messed up, so we had to destroy them all in the world, and the earth was kind of like this scorched, messed up ball. And so uh, when you translate it that way, it reads like this. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void. In other words, it already existed. There was already matter. There was already this huge catastrophe. The demons already fell. All these things happened in these ages. And, and then you, know, you have ideas of things like you know the gap theory, that there's this huge gap of time between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, so that way you can fit all the evolution junk in there. Or that you have the day-age theory, that there's this these theories that after each day of creation, there was you know this huge gap, eons of time, so that way you can have lots of dead things dying, so we can account for all the geologic strata and all that stuff. And you just need to come to Sunday night to learn about that, because we're debunking all of that. John Feinberg, in his work, No One Likes Him, notes several, uh, eight characteristics about God's eternity. He says, God has existed in the endless past. Psalm 93, verse 2, your throne is established from old, you are from everlasting. God will exist endlessly into the future. Psalm 9, verse 7, but the Lord abides forever. Three, God will always exist. Genesis 21, 33, Abraham called the name, on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Four, God existed before creation. John seventeen five. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Five, God existed to make decisions before the ages. First Corinthians two seven. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Six, God will always exist to fulfill His purposes. Genesis 7, or promises, Genesis 17, 8, I will give to you and to your descendants after you an everlasting possession. I will be their God. 7, God will always exist to rule, Jeremiah 10, 10, but the Lord is, in the, is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting King. And finally, God's existence is unaffected by time. Psalm 90, verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. So God is the eternal God. He is both a-temporal and semp-eternal. If you want to use the big terms, uh, they all match God. They match God because of these two other attributes of God that theologians speak of, which is his transcendence and his imminence. Uh, when it talks about God being transcendent, it means that God is so huge. He is so massive. He is just so infinite in all of his attributes. We could never know him. He's just, he's like massive. And then imminence means God is close to anybody who calls upon him. He's close to his creatures. He, he has both of those qualities. He is both infinite and yet close. I love, I love how... Solomon, when he is dedicating the temple, and Solomon goes all out, he builds the temple, you know, he decks it out with all of the choices, everything. And then he says this when he's dedicating it in 1 Kings 8, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest of heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. God is eternal. Think about this. The heavens and the highest of heavens cannot contain God. Why? Because God is infinite and everything he created is finite. All the universe is within the being of God. All those millions and billions and trillions and quadrillions, they don't even know because the universe is so massive how big it is. 
They can take the Hubble telescope and look, uh, zoom up on a portion of space. They can find a dark spot in that portion of space. They can then zoom up on a little pixel on that and then focus the camera on that little microscopic pitch black dark spot, zoom up on it and find hundreds of galaxies, billions of light years apart. And all of that is but a microscopic speck in the vastness of God's being. He is transcendent. But not only that, he's close. You call on God, he is near. Listen to what Psalm 113 says, verses 4 through 9. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord God who is enthroned on high? He says God is way up there. I mean, he's beyond the heavens. I mean, he's beyond the universe. He's huge. And then it says this. Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. And he just says, our God is great. But even though he is so great and we can't figure him out completely, he has humbled himself to come down to serve and help sinners. That's amazing. I mean, that's what Paul says, right, in Philippians 2, that although Jesus existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He humbled himself. He was found in the appearance of man. He he laid aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And that's why God then again highly exalts him. If you don't know Jesus, we're going to learn next time about how he is the creator. When it says in the beginning, God, that's going to be our next sermon. God. And we're going to talk about God, the creator. I mean, it's loaded There are so many great things in there. We're just going to hack it off here. This is the link sausage sermon. I've got more, but we're just going to cut it off here. Um, If you, if you wondering where I disappeared to the next couple weeks, I'm going to be halfway around the world in Perth, Australia. Um, Lisa and I are going to be doing two different conferences there. So you could pray for us as uh, we're both tired. We have a lot to do. Our kids are sick, and we're leaving. And uh, so we'll be in a tube with other people for many hours who are all coughing and have the flu. And we're praying that God gives us strength and keeps us healthy. So uh, you can pray about that. And uh, if, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if all this is kind of new and you're just thinking, wow, what is this, man? This is like, my, I just kind of showed up. I wonder what they did here. And we do cool stuff here. Uh, we learn about the Bible. Uh, But most importantly, we learn that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ into this world to die on the cross for our sins. So that anybody who believes in him could receive the free gift of eternal life. If you've never done that, we would encourage you to do that this morning. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read earlier, as Tim read earlier All things came into being by him. 
And apart from him, nothing came into being. And that great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, humbled himself, came to this world, came, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, that he might perish so that unworthy sinners might live. And then he rose again on the third day because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And now he promises to resurrect all those who believe in him. We thank you for that. We're thankful for Genesis. We're thankful that you are our creator God, that you spoke all things into existence by the word of your power. May we not be deceived by the lies of evolution in millions and billions of years, but just believe your truth and to remember you know everything and men do not. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.